Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. Hello out there. I'm excited to be speaking with my first guest, Angela Marcelino. So thank you so much for being with us. I love your book. You have a number of recipes, a ton of beautiful, delicious sounding recipes, and they all are really exciting things that people can make, especially if they're in Cape Cod, but if they want to bring some Cape Cod and some New England their way this summer, it's a fantastic read and it's full of history. So welcome, 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 Angela. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So your book is called The True Natives of Cape Cod, Massachusetts and Their Foodways Recipes with Stories of Food, History, Culture, and Identity. You're a member of the Wampanoag tribe, and you've served on several boards and commissions for the tribe. The recipes make for a delicious guide to cook all summer, as I mentioned. And this Saturday at Barnes & Noble at 12 p.m. noon, you'll be signing copies of your book. And it features a number of delicious recipes, including quahog chowder, oyster stew, baked beans, summer squash, Indian pudding, kale soup, and so many more. You're the granddaughter of a prominent Mashpee selectman, Stephen Peters, and the daughter of a Cape Verdean Mashpee policeman, John Marcelino Jr., and you have Wampanoag, Azorian, and Cape Verdean roots. Your recipes reflect these influences. Can you talk about the link between the two cultures? Well, it's really interesting. You know, there's a, the new buzzword is, of course, food identity. When I first started this cookbook, I thought, gee, I'll just get a bunch of recipes together. It would be kind of a fun project. And then I started to focus on where did these recipes begin? Where did these ingredients come from? What ingredients were native to this region, you know, such as corn and squash, lobster, so forth? And what part of these early American recipes were English technique and English English imports? So it was kind of a, a fun thing. I wanted to identify when I looked at a recipe, such as chowder as a classic recipe, you know that the milk and the, the cream and the salt bath, the salt pork, which is a... Uh, was brought here from the settlers of the colony. and But you know, the clams and some of the cooking technique and even the onions, Native Americans used a lot of wild onions in their broth, came from the Native Americans. So what components were Native American and what components were components that were introduced by the settlers? So that was the first part of my research and it became really fun. I started to read a lot of old English cookbooks. <laughs> like in a third language. It was a lot of fun. But I found out the food really was telling me a story about benchmarks in our history, how these groups of people interacted. And so I realized the the book started to become more than a cookbook. It became a book about my ancestry. It became a book about food identity. Um, You know, who is Angie? You know, why, why is she here? And why is she cooking these kinds of meals? It wasn't an accident. I'm here for because of some very big benchmarks in the history of this country. One being the first encounters of the settlers and the native folks that lived here. My family, the Wampanoags, um, which did greet 
the settlers. Um, the benchmark, you know, that we see in history is, of course, Thanksgiving. Not so much of a benchmark for us. <laughs> But from what I read, part of a huge PR campaign from uh, uh, President Roosevelt um, at the time. So it's a fun time right now uh, in history. We get to look at history uh, with a lot of great scientific information out there now. And we get to look at history from a different perspective now. And we get to tell the story a little differently. Yes. And in your book, you mention Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes as being part of the first Thanksgiving. Yes. I don't think a lot of people, it's so funny in the book, we also talk about shellfish. Um, um, the settlers considered shellfish a very lowly food. And England eating shellfish was not a positive thing. Um, it was very lowly food. But the archaeologists, when they looked at a lot of the Bostonian archaeology sites, they found out that they were secretly eating the food, the shellfish. And shellfish was probably more prominent in Thanksgiving than they give it credit for. And the whole posture of Thanksgiving is being rediscovered now. It was a group of people that were probably both nervous on both sides. The indigenous people were very probably concerned about guns. <laughs> and the um, settlers were very concerned about how many natives are there out there, you know, how many are behind uh, maybe Connecticut and so forth. Uh, it was kind of a posturing kind of a situation. It wasn't maybe a total love fest. It was more of a mutual examination of what each other was all about. Yes, because pow, 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 pow doesn't really ring as like a fun, a good fun time at the harvest to, <laughs> to no. know that time. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, when you talk about indigenous history in the Americas and the encounters, the story can be very overwhelming. In fact, when I would work at the, when I uh, volunteered at the museum, the Mashi Wampanoag Museum, I would find that a lot of people were very intimidated to talk about the history, non-natives, because they felt so responsible. So it wasn't a good uh, way to communicate. There was so, so much guilt involved and sometimes lack of information and a comfort level. And I felt that food was a great way to get people comfortable together, to have a meaningful conversation about our history in a, in a safe place, in a safe and nurturing place. And food provides all those, all those, uh, background uh, stipulations. You know, it feels comfortable and safe. Now we can have a conversation and learn more about each other. Your recipe book is full of photographs and also images of crew bugs. It's a fascinating and interesting read and it feels very personal. Can you talk a little bit about whaling? Yes, in the book, I um, I have I offer some historical timelines about the Mashpee Indian District, and Mashpee is the last Indian one of the last Indian districts located in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But I also speak to the whaling industry. From the beginning, whaling was a huge concern for the colonists, and I put in some information regarding that. They were always looking for whaling as a business industry. And the whaling potential of Massachusetts and New England was very powerful at the time. But what really was a very turning point in my research is um, I realized that I was descended from whalers from both my native side, my indigenous side, were whalers, active whalers, many of them um, out of Martha's Vineyard, 
and some out of Mashpee, definitely. And then I had the Cape Verdean whalers and Azorean whalers on my other side. So I found out that my, my paternal and my maternal side, I am descended from whalers, including a third grandfather that is from the Seychelles Islands, you know, the stories of Moby Dick. I mean, to think that my great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather came here on the Sea Fox from the Seychelles Islands to follow these large, majestic creatures, you know, I'm not here by accident. These two groups of people, three groups of people, merged, and here's Angie. <laughs> and they brought great food with them. Yes, and like you can see the influence of these cultures in food, like your stuffed cohogs with the linguista. You talk a little bit about how in Mashpee, some Wampanoag folks also descended from the Mayflower lineage with the Nickersons and the Burses. Do you also share in common with other Wampanoag tribe members some lineage, from, uh, Portuguese lineage? Oh, yeah. It's that, that's the, the, the big point in my book is that these unions happened on this little peninsula and in southeastern Massachusetts. And when I would work, when I did some uh, work definitely for my tribe, I would travel all over the country and people would say, you're from Cape Cod. I'd say, yes. And they'd say, what is your heritage? And I would tell them, you know, it's Portuguese, uh, Cape Verde and uh, Wampanoag. And they would look at me like I had three heads. And I'd look at them and think to myself, this is a very common union on Cape Cod, including um, many tribal members, probably even me, because I don't, I don't have that down packed yet, but I'm pretty sure we are descended from colonial people as well. I'm 30% Eastern English, most <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and that's where they came from. The Puritans came from that region. So I think there's a high possibility. Um, it could have come from my other side of my grandmother's family, but we're looking into that now. But I have many first cousins that are Burses and Nickersons and, and all that. People at that time, true history, uh, people were in isolated pockets. Life was short. Uh, you could lose a spouse and, it, you know, from some sort of disease or something. And you had to have someone to work those fields with you or fish or keep your family alive. So commingled it, it, you know, DNA doesn't lie. And it <laughs> happened often. Unfortunately, sometimes it was probably illegal at points, but it happened and it would, it, the doubt, you know, the proof's in the pudding and now that people are looking into the lineage and looking into their DNA, they're seeing who we really are made of. We are the first Americans. And the first Americans, very common, more than of one heritage. Again, at the very beginning, there were very small clumps of people in isolated pockets, and they had to work together to survive. What was very um, meaningful for me is there were actual lofts uh, list where I could see the Marcelino names and some of the surnames of my other Cape Verdean relatives on my grandmother's side um, with the Peters family. They were actually on ships together. And that was very moving for me emotionally. I mean, I have no accident. They were all in the same vicinity, actually participating in a very dangerous trade. When they got on those ships, they were like your first astronauts. They went all over the world to the South Pacific, to Alaska. They sometimes were even indentured and not paid. Some of these whalers were actually abandoned on islands, never to return. 
like the astronauts, it was a high probability that you weren't going to return home to your loved ones. Um, it was a very dangerous kind of a occupation. But the other thing about whaling that people don't know is the economy. It made southeastern eastern Massachusetts the richest economy on the planet at the time in the 1800s. Those monies financed wars. They helped us build our, our uh, country's infrastructure. It was a powerful thing, that whaling industry. I want to speak for those people that had no voices, and they were my relatives, and they helped build this country. For folks just joining us now, we're speaking with Angela Marcelino. She is the author of The True Natives of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and their foodways, recipes, and stories of food, history, culture, and identity. She's going to be signing books Saturday at 12 p.m. at the Barnes & Noble in Hyannis. It's an awesome book, and uh, folks could, should really check it out. I would love for you to either talk about herring or your clam bake before we go. I would say when we were um, talking about specific recipes, some recipes are very ancient recipes that I share in this book, you know, um, and the clam bake is some of the recipes are definitely a combination of colonial recipes mixed with Native American foodways and techniques. But some recipes are just purely uh, indigenous to Mashpee and to Native Americans. And so I shared the clam bake is one of the most ancient cooking techniques in our region. It's obviously Native American. It's an underground technique with rocks and seaweed. It's a highly ancient technique. And, you know, I never thought about it, you know, but my family, every summer we were putting our clam bakes together. Our whole family would go down to the uh, Papanesset Bay and dig up the cohogs and bring them home. And usually around powwow, which is our spiritual time and our family time, there were always a clam bake, but it was a big family production. You know, everybody had to participate in gathering sometimes up to two days of participation of gathering the cohogs getting the lobsters in line, you know, gathering the seaweed, the rocks, digging the pit, retrieving the wood. And then we had to have people watch the clam bake all day as people went back and forth for their spiritual time at powwow. It, it was just something that I didn't really think about until I wrote this book, how automatic this happened every year and how old this practice is. It's probably, it's over 10,000 years old. Um, but now people eat their modern day clam bakes and, you know, maybe they don't really know how it came about. So I hope I help with that. Uh, the corn herring is another one. It's a very ancient, um, ancient recipe. Um, it's actually herring that is layered in salt. Now we didn't have salt, I believe in the first native air herring, but the premise of it, 99% is mostly a native practice. And it's drying of the herring. My uncles used to poke holes through their eyes. I know it sounds awful, through sticks and hang them up in large trees so the raccoons wouldn't get to them. Um, you know, that was my childhood. <laughs> as odd as it may seem, I was living a, a native life and had no idea that I was practicing very ancient uh, techniques and ancient um, ancient cultural activities. And I bet you can taste the difference. All that love, <laughs> all that care put into it, you know? Yeah, yeah it is. Um, I think it's something, sometimes it's good. I think everybody should take a moment and do their ancestry 
and try to figure out, you know, why you do the things every day you do. And some of them might stem back from your ancestors. Very good advice. Angela Marcelino, thank you for being with us. Um, Thank you for having me. Very lovely. Thank you. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. music is provided by Mazen. You can find her website at mazenmusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N 